guys, welcome back to another week of Autastic, your comedian's guide to autism. I'm one of your hosts, Kirk Smith, and my co-host. And oh, I almost jumped the gun. <laughs> I'm over here, Graham K. How are we doing? I hope everyone is okay. Um, and you know, it's uh, week one million of quarantine. Uh, well, we're not. I'm not. Of, of of the pandemic, I don't think we're still quarantining, but we're we're you know, you get it. We're living with our loved ones who have autism. Cramped in a house, making it work. We have a very special episode this it's week. True. Don't we, it's Kurt? true. Yeah, I sound like I'm yeah. transmitting live from the caves of Kabul, Afghanistan. But uh, it's a little echoey. I am yeah, you do. in Florida doing shows, and I had to move hotels, and they're not ready for me to check in. So I'm broadcasting live from some gym. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, we're, uh, we're on uh, FaceTime, and he calls me, and there's a bunch of... Uh, a stationary bicycles behind him. I'm like, what's going on? What is your life? <laughs> <laughs> He's like eating Wendy's out of a bag. He's, there's stationary bikes behind him. I mean, this looks exhausting. Your whole life lo- just seems exhausting. Uh, oh, man, you have no idea. I'm like, what am I doing to myself? Not to what me. What am I doing? You're like, you know what? I, 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 uh, for 18 years, I lived with a severely autistic child, and now he's in a safe... Uh, caretaker house situation you know what i'm gonna be a touring not famous stand-up comedian (laughs) (laughs) honestly it's about the same amount of pain it's a a very similar lifestyle (laughs) very painful Mm -hmm. actually that kind of tips our hand to uh our interview where we're talking about uh yes housing go ahead set it up actually you know what sorry i jumped the gun interview yeah, I've got a quick, I've got a quick little weekend review with Peter. Yeah, what's going on, uh, Pete? My brother, of course. Yeah, and then so Peter is, uh, you know, like I mentioned off the top of the show, it's week one million of the pandemic, and he's getting squirrely. He called me the other day, I think six times. Um, he's wow. getting pretty bored, and he started, he's getting. People have stopped responding to his emails. There's only so much you can respond to his emails. So he's expanding well, his network Well, there's not that much happening, so it's hard to say, like, what's going on? I'm like, the same stuff. <laughs> well, he'll, but he'll email you the same stuff. He doesn't care. Right, but then what do you reply to that? You're like, yeah, I'm still stuck in my house. Yeah. Honestly, that's all you have to do. He just needs, he needs a little ping back, but I understand people are busy. I, I don't respond to half his emails, but I've started to. <laughs> I mean, I talk to the guy six times a day, but anyway, he's become more, he started emailing his building's super and the, uh, and the staff that take care of the, this is like a 25 story building. And, and he started to email them just like, Hey, how's it going? With like his, his sort of coded message messaging, like, you know, his emails, you need to, to know him and you need to receive his emails for a long time to understand what he's saying. What he's getting at, Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, I've read some of his emails on air, and, and then they'll be like, and then, so they, my mother is the president of the condo board of that building, so then they'll, e- th- those people email my mom, be like, what is he saying? And she'll be like, my mom, I, there's one correspondence where my mom emailed back and goes, does he mean this? Did he meet, see you there? And then the, the super wrote back, I have no idea. <laughs> and so Peter had, or my mom had to, to, 
tell Peter not to email the super because he's lonely. And um, then he, he was like crestfallen and embarrassed and blah, blah, blah. And so I had to talk him off a cliff. But he's happier today. He called and Good. my 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 girlfriend was over. And so we got to talk to her on FaceTime. And that really perked him up. He showed off his apartment, gave us a tour of the apartment, <laughs> told us a story about some guy in high school named Steve Fershette, who karate chopped him on the back on his shoulder and went, hi-ya, and then called him a bomb head. And uh, that was really, he was just stewing about that. That happened 22 years ago at a bus station. <laughs> Steve, God. Well, you got to tell somebody. Darn Steve Fershette. You got to tell somebody. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Steve, if you're hearing, you owe Peter Parker Spider-Man an apology. Yeah. Yeah. Don't high-eye him on the shoulder. And you also told him to go bite somebody. And that was very rude. <laughs> and he was telling the story, and it was really funny. And so we kind of giggled. And he was like, uh, uh, excuse me? Don't giggle. Okay? <laughs> don't. He said, he said uh, don't laugh. This is not a funny situation. Julia, this is not a funny situation. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He's like, okay. And then he just goes back. He starts from the beginning, goes back into it again. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> but he's doing, you know, he's fine. He's fine. Good. I'm proud of him. He's doing as well as anybody can do. Should we, should we do the interview? Yeah, I'm excited about this one. I was, um, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I called Jill and I'm like, I want to do some... More roving reporter Jill Escher comes yes. through in the clutch. Some more Jill one. segments, and um, and I, I was hoping for some science. And then she she her idea was no no my friend wrote this book and uh, yeah so she sent over the book and um, the interview. Amy Lutz. Yes. Amy Lutz. Uh, she's had a few books. This is I believe her second or third book. She's had articles published in Slate. Um, and she, well, you'll hear, she, she explains who she is. It's better if she does it. I love this interview. This was a great it's interview. It's a great interview. Yeah. Let's roll it. All right. Hey, Autastic listeners. It's roving reporter, Jill Escher here. I've been out for a while, uh, just, you know, doing the COVID thing. I've been pretty busy with my kiddos and lots of projects, but I'm back and happy to uh, be back on the podcast Today, I am interviewing um, a colleague of mine who recently wrote a book about life with severe autism. Her name is Amy Lutz. Hey, Amy. Hi, Jill. Good to see you via Zoom. <laughs> yes, um, always good to see you. So it's great that you wrote this book. Um, there aren't a lot of books out about you know, the more severe end of the spectrum. Um, and I think it's a book that a lot of parents would like to know about. Um, I know that you are obviously a colleague of mine. You are vice president on the National Council on Severe Autism. But could you also tell us a little bit more about your background? Sure. Um, well, first of, all, I should, first of all, I should say that I am mom to five children. My oldest son, Jonah, who's 22, is severely autistic. And my background is in writing. I have a, a master's of fine arts and creative writing. But as the degree of Jonah's impairments kind of became more and more obvious. I found myself writing more and more about issues relating to severe autism. And I can't even remember the last time I wrote fiction, which is what my background is in. Yeah, this um, is not your first book. 
no, this is not my first book. This is my, my first book came out in 2014 and it was about the treatment of aggressive and self-injurious behavior, which unfortunately I know a lot about now. Um, and then, so I do a lot of writing and advocating uh, for the severe end of the spectrum. And I also am right now finishing my doctorate in the history of medicine at Penn because I found myself in some of these crazy debates and defending positions that felt to me just common sense and finding myself losing in the policy arena. And I really was curious how we got here. So that was four years ago that I went back to school and I'm hoping to finish up um, in 2022. Got it. So now you put your uh, talents to work on this book called We Walk. Mm -hmm. uh, can you just tell us why was it called We Walk? <laughs> Well, it was called We Walk because uh, my first title got shot down by the editor. <laughs> it is a, it's a collection of essays, uh, I'll say that. And um, the title I had for the, the collection at first was The Child Who Does Not Know How to Ask, which I don't have to explain to you as a member of the tribe, is a uh, line from the Jewish Haggadah, which... Uh, it's a title of an essay about the joint B'nai Mitzvah Jonah and I celebrated in 2016. But I also thought it spoke to the larger um, collection because Jonah is a child who does not know how to ask because he has no abstract language. Um, but I think that my publisher, which was uh, Cornell University Press, maybe they thought it was too wordy. Uh, maybe they thought it was too Jewy and most people wouldn't get it. <laughs> I tend to forget that most people aren't Jewish because so many people I know are. Um, but I do love We Walk, which is the title of the first essay in the collection. Um, and I love it because I think it really encapsulates our journey with Jonah. You know, it's not like there hasn't been progress. There has been a lot of progress, a lot of amazing, important progress, but it's not fast. I mean, otherwise I could have called it, we run. So <laughs> it's like slow forward, steady progress. So I think, um, which pretty much sums up our journey so far. Yeah, your title could have been, we take little tiny itty bitty baby steps. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes we find ourselves, you know, taking a bunch of steps backwards, but when I look back sometimes at where we've been, I'm, I am always um, really happy to that we're not back there in those really dark days. So, um, so on the whole, I'd say that it's, you know, I'm really happy with where we are right now. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about those dark days? Now you wrote about them also in your, your first book and your experience using um, a therapy called ECT when it turned out that medications really couldn't help Jonah's extremely severe behaviors that threatened really his, his life. Yeah. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Do you mind? No. Um, most of Jonah's early life, he suffered from some really aggressive and self-injurious episodes. Um, he would attack me, his, his dad, and teachers and aides. And the only reason we were able to keep him at home through this time is that he never attacked the other kids, which, I mean, I was always terrified that that would change and he would do that because I thought he could, he would kill one of them. I mean, he was the largest in the house by, not by a small amount. And he, of course he had no control over himself during these rages. He wasn't trying to hurt anybody, but it, they were the most fierce rages uh, you can imagine. He ended up being hospitalized for almost a year when he was nine at the Kennedy Krieger Institute in Maryland, which is the 
um, premier unit for kids with developmental disabilities and dangerous behaviors. And he was temporarily stabilized there where he also received a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And the doctors there felt this the bipolar disorder was driving the rages. I mean, he clearly wasn't hitting us in order to access some preferred item or to get out of doing a task. He really had no control over these behaviors. They would come over him when he was in the middle of doing his absolute favorite things. He could be watching Sesame Street and eating McDonald's French fries and then boom, he would just turn and launch at us. And we just always had to be ready. You know, he could come in and you might think he's coming in for a hug and then he would just grab my hair. And so uh, th that level of kind of anxiety and anticipation. I, I don't know how I lived like that for so long, honestly. Um, That's traumatic. Absolutely. Yeah. But so um, you turn to ECT. You might want to uh, just say a word about yeah. that. Sure. Um, after he came back from a year after he came back from Kennedy Krieger, his behaviors were as bad as they ever were. So we decided to try electroconvulsive therapy which I knew that they had used at Kennedy Krieger with some kids who didn't respond to medications or behavior plans. And I have to say it's been transformative for Jonah. He's been going for more than a decade now and he has to go pretty frequently. He goes about three times a month. He just went this morning, um, but the ECT stabilizes the bipolar disorder just like it would in, in a typical patient. And um, so Jonah just doesn't rage anymore. He doesn't ever hit us or come after us. Um, sometimes he gets frustrated just like anyone else when things aren't going his way, but the worst he does is, is bite his hand. And uh, sometimes he will hit the side of his head and he is developing a cauliflower ear about which we're concerned, but that level of um, aggression is nothing compared to um, what we were living with before ECT. In ECT I, I think you... Yeah. You, you said before that if it weren't for e ECT, he would be locked up in some psych ward somewhere. Oh, 100%. He yeah. would be locked up. He would be like chemically restrained, like sedated up to his eyeballs. And he might even be in actual like five point physical restraints. I mean, I couldn't manage him physically when he was nine. Now he's six feet tall and 200 pounds. There's no way I could manage him physically now. So um, but because of ECT, he's still living at home. He, he goes to a program that's out in the community most of the time. I mean, it's a little bit restricted now because of COVID, but he's, he gets to go, he spends the weekends going to the big box stores with his dad, which he loves and going on hikes with me, which he also likes. Um, so yeah, we credit ECT with all of that. Yeah, no, ECT I know is, is controversial because people think of it like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but it's actually... Um, a fairly routine therapy used, for example, for intractable depression. Um, it has a lot of efficacy across, um, you know, different um, illnesses. But I, I, I think that people tend to think of it in a very negative light. But in a situation like yours, where there were no, no alternatives, you had to do something. Oh, so, absolutely. And yeah. you know what? That's true. I mean, once flew over the cuckoo's nest really de destroyed forever the, the reputation of ECD. But you're right. Um, if you just do a search on PubMed, there's, I think there's up to 15,000 studies cited uh, documenting the safety and efficacy of ECT for certain indications. You're right. You know, treatment refractory depression, kind of the agitated states of, of bipolar and schizophrenia and catatonia, which a lot of autistic kids actually develop, but is often goes, goes unrecognized by practitioners who aren't used to seeing it. Um, so, and now it's even being you know, used to treat Parkinson's and sometimes um, status epilepticus. So 
it has uh, real use in the in the psychiatric um, arsenal. And yeah. you know, there's a lot of information out there for anybody who's interested in um, checking it out. Great. So uh, you've learned a lot of hard lessons. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've all learned uh, a lot of our, our lessons in, uh, through tough times in real life. And I know that you put a lot of these lessons into your new book, We Walk. Would you mind telling us about some of the lessons you think other autism parents could benefit from? Well, so We Walk is not about the treatment of, you know, dangerous behaviors. Those make an appearance because that's, you know, was part of our life for so long. But I was really interested in exploring kind of our society through the lens of severe autism. You know, what is what kind of society do we want to build? What is the place for people with really potentially disruptive behaviors in the public sphere? So that's kind of what I'm wrestling with in this book. There's an essay about what religion has to offer people who have no abstract language. And I'm still not sure I know the answer, except I did kind of figure out what religion might offer families of individuals with no abstract language and the importance of community for families that are often so isolated. You know, I really think there's nothing harder than caring for um, an individual who's a threat to hurt himself or other people. When Jonah mm -hmm. was at his worst, we couldn't have people over to our house. You know, we couldn't take him anywhere. And knowing that there's a community that supports you is, can be absolutely life-saving. You know, I loved how my, I am not a particularly religious person, but I loved how our synagogue community kind of rallied around us when we wanted to have a joint B'nai Mitzvah. The clergy were incredibly su supportive in designing a, um, you know, a plan for a service that Jonah could participate in. And even though they didn't have a special needs Hebrew school, there was another Hebrew school in our, another synagogue in our, in our county that did, and they welcomed us in, and it was just a real team approach. So that community was strong. I have an essay about um, about taking Jonah out in the community, which which kind of grew out of a, a kind of short Slate article that I wrote a, many years ago. It was one of the first articles I wrote for Slate, and the, it's just a funny story about that article because I was writing for them, I wrote something about ECT. I wrote, um, you know, I wrote things about the new DSM when got rid of Asperger's. And, you know, the articles, they got some comments. It's Slate, of course, there are always gonna be lots of comments there, but I thought this was gonna be a throwaway article. It was about the time I took Jonah out to dinner at a really casual restaurant and it, one of the patrons gave me a hard time because Jonah was kind of noisy and he wasn't actually upset or anything. He was just kind of clapping and vocalizing in the way that he does when he's about to get hamburger and French fries and because that's his favorite thing. So, and that one article had, you know, 2,500 comments. I couldn't believe it. All oh the articles God. that I had researched and spent interviews did interviews for and this was just like my thoughts on taking Jonah out in the community and I realized it's because everybody goes out to eat and people have strong opinions about whether their experience even at someplace like the Olive Garden you know you know whether they should be able to have a really quiet you know peaceful meal at a restaurant like that and of course many of the comments were supportive and said rightly so I think that if you want 
absolute quiet, you know, stay home and eat, you know, or, but there were many people who, who didn't support me taking Joan out in the community. And I think if they had been pressed would say, just keep him at home, which I don't think is an option. You know, I know you take mm -hmm. Sophie out all the time and I love the pictures of her skiing and going to Hawaii. She has a more active light on the community than I do, I think. Um, mm -hmm. But it's really important to, um, that our kids feel welcome in the community, even though they're different, even though even if they're not actively disruptive, there might be noticeably different and odd in their behaviors. And so I, I took that small article and just kind of blew it out to talk about, to, to look at how philosophers and psychologists and sociologists have, have thought about this idea of sharing public spaces to see if there were um, any lessons that we could draw on how to kind of negotiate this space in a way that's respectful of other people's boundaries, but also really fosters, uh, you know, a sense of community engagement for our kids. Right. Well, I, yes, very important kind of society-wide issues, all these implications of, you know, having a child that is disruptive, right, but yeah. also deserves a place in the world. So right. there are all these points of conflict that I think we autism parents deal with every day, you know, in so many different ways. And, you know, another issue you talk about, we have to unfortunately wrap up in a second, but you talk about, you know, who, ha who speaks for people who can't speak for themselves, right? That's right. another theme in your book, right? Yeah. Who has the right to say like, what's best for Jonah and what's best for, you know, Johnny in my case or Sophie in my case, like, um, do you want to say something about that before we wrap up? Sure. I, uh, I really, this is one of those topics that I can't believe that there's any debate over. You know, I also have a strong interest in bioethics and I will say there's a very robust bioethical literature about surrogate, surrogate decision-making. And I can tell you about how many articles there are saying that the person who should best speak for an incapacitated individual is somebody who has the same diagnosis of that person but a much milder version and who has never even met them. Okay, that would be zero. <laughs> you know, be zero, bi yeah. bioethicists agree that the family is the kind of assumed surrogate decision maker, unless there's some reason to suspect that that the family is not um, right is not up to the job for what for a range of reasons. But yet here we are having to defend that the family is that we should speak for our our kids who can't advocate for themselves versus you know much mild more mildly affected self advocates who have never met our kids. And I think that's Honestly, that's insane. I wouldn't want anyone to advocate for me if I were incapacitated who didn't love me dearly. You know, just speak no offense, Jill, just because you're neurotypical doesn't mean that you know anything about what would, if I would want if I were in a coma. And you probably that's know true. more than like just some random person on the street who has never met me. You know, just because you share a diagnosis doesn't mean you know anything about that person. I mean, I think that the incredibly broad range of what has come to be the autism spectrum, really, there's no other way to interpret that. And the and everybody deserves someone who loves them to make decisions for them when they can't make decisions for themselves. I feel like this is just a, this is just a truth claim that is really hard to challenge. Yeah, common sense. Well, yeah. thank you, Amy, for writing the book. It's a wonderful book. You know, it's um, full of lots and lots of real hard truths about autism and it's very thoughtful. Um, uh -huh. You draw from lots and lots of sources um, in your sort of internal debates about these important issues. So thank you so much and tell people where they can find the book. 
Well, thank you so much, Jill. You can find it, um, you know, on Amazon or order from your local independent bookstore. Um, I think you can probably order it anywhere. You could pick up any book. Amy Lutz, thank you so much for being on Autastic. Thanks, Jill, for having me. All right, what do you think, Graham? I have a lot to say, but I want to hear what you say, have to say first. Oh, okay. Well, um, <laughs> I, the one thing that stood out to me that I never really thought of because I was always bigger than Peter is the danger of the uh, child with autism attacking the smaller child without autism yeah. and severely hurting them. And I'm sure that... that I thought of you immediately when she talked about that. I had never thought about that added wrinkle, if you want to yeah, call it that. JJ was younger than uh, than Alex, my daughter, neurotypical daughter, but around. But a boy. But a boy. And, and so yeah. he was bigger than her, maybe, I don't know. I was trying to think of how old he was. He was bigger than maybe when he was 13. You know, he just, yeah. he, you know, Alex is pretty tall, maybe like 5'9", but he's taller and he's just bigger. And he's more prone to physical violence. Like she doesn't, uh, yeah, she's just not built that way. I taught, I, I tried to teach her some boxing, some stuff like that. So if you put her in a pinch, she can, but she's just not, he just looks like a, and acts like an offensive lineman, just hands up, just like pushing his way through yeah. life. And she, and yeah, she doesn't a, think like sumo. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was an interesting one. I did think it was. She's an author. She, she's an aspiring author herself. She thinks like an author. Exactly. Like a writer. Exactly. Yeah. She's written, I think, two, two and a half books now. And then the other thing, there's wow. a couple things that were interesting, I thought, was um, when she talks about um, who should make the decisions. She's like, I thought this was common sense. And we've talked about this a bunch of times on this podcast, but who yes. should make the decisions for uh, people with autism? Somebody else who has a similar diagnosis, who doesn't know the person at all? Or a family yeah. member who loves them, which is like, well, duh. Obviously, the family member should be making these decisions. Yeah. But the fact that it's even something that needs to be discussed, not only making the decisions, but advocate for them, speak for them. Like, you know, and sometimes we even get this feedback. We're like, well, you guys don't have autism. You shouldn't be able to talk about this stuff. Well, it's like, well, who's supposed to talk about JJ's stuff then, if not me? Nobody yeah, else nobody. even. Silent, I guess. Yeah. We'll just sweep him under the rug like he doesn't exist. Well, that was the, that oh, was I guess the other thing. So Yes, yeah, somebody else who do, who doesn't know him and who doesn't even isn't even on the same spectrum. Right, they're on the spectrum, but the level of disability is not even. Uh, and she yeah. made a, a good point where it's like just because you have the same level of, you know, like you and I are neurotypical, quote unquote. So then I, yeah. I can advocate for you better than, you know, or I could advocate better for you than than your own mom if you're in a coma. No, your mom's gonna know better. Well, you know, she loves yeah. you and she. she yeah. She should be making decisions. And I even know you. What if, what if I was just a stranger? Just because I'm neurotypical, I make the decisions? That's a terrible idea. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to have these decisions made by a government committee, maybe? That's the dumbest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> and then... And Amy... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, bud. No, no, you go ahead. No, no, yours is on the same thread, so go ahead, please. Well, no, what she said... There's a couple other things she said uh, that, that jumped out at me. Um, was uh, who gets to decide public space, right? Where it's like she talks about taking her son out to an Olive Garden, which is not a nice, you know, it's it's a it's a fine restaurant, it's fine, but it's not uh, a highfalutin fine dining. And somebody's yeah. upset about him making noise. So so what's the solution? Who gets to decide uh, yeah. who's a person and who gets to go out? So let me get this straight: because you like f quiet dinners, you get to decide if my son leaves the house. 
That's not going to happen. You do not get silence if you want free breadsticks. <laughs> you want free salad, free breadsticks? Guess what, pal? <laughs> uh, but also, we shouldn't just uh, limit people who aren't neurotypical to, you know, B or C restaurants. Uh, yeah, that's not so. even the issue. But I'm just saying your expectations should be even lower at a B and C restaurant. Like if you, you know, I, I a little bit understand when sometimes people complain about, you know, it was our anniversary and it was $200 a plate. And I took my son out to a nice place and, and this happened and they have a complaint. But it's like if you're basically saying that the disabled should not be out in public, you're wrong. You don't get to decide that. My son has a right to exist. He has a, has a right to leave the house. He has a right to, you know... Can his things be a little disruptive for our neurotypical people? Sometimes. And, you yeah. know, sorry. And I'll apologize and make eye contact and apologize. But uh, that's, that doesn't matter. You don't get to decide that he does, that he, what he, you don't get to decide his activities just because you're neurotypical. Just like he doesn't get to decide your activities because he's not neurotypical. It's like mm -hmm. he's a human being. He has a right to exist. He has a right to, to go out in public. Mm-hmm. Sorry, absolutely. I get off my high horse now. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. It's funny. When I was a kid, a brother, um, in a restaurant, mm -hmm. my, my brother would be making noises or going off. I would just, I mean, I, I don't want to say traumatized, but it really, really bothered me. I was so embarrassed. Mm. I, 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 I was like... Yeah, and it was just because other people didn't know, I guess. And I, I just when I think and and it, I hope that things are changing and I hope that people don't I mean, she said that she got a hard time and I hope it doesn't happen that often. You know, I, I hope things are changing, I guess is all I'm saying. Cuz it affects everybody in the family when people yeah, when course. people look over and and give the family a hard time. Well, so even like I mean the, it's stressful to the parents. Yeah, well you think of it from the sibling, but I would think of it from her point of view as a parent. So Yeah. You know, you've got they've got two parents and she talks about her husband taking them on hikes and she talks about, you know, so they're trying to find things for him to do. And so one of the things to do is he likes hamburgers and french fries, so they take him to a place and he's enjoying his food or he's excited to receive his food. And, you know, I understand how it could be, you know, there's levels to this stuff. Like if my, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, like there's different levels of like my son has an accident or something like that. That's something different. But just the very fact that he's a little excited and a little boisterous and claps his hands. I get that that's not your ideal and you're not used to it, but suck it up. That's, that's part of being in society and not everybody's the same. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, I, yeah, this is a, sorry, check I'm out, so, check strong, out Amy's I'm so book. strongly opinionated on this, but yeah, I'm starting to sound like a, like a, yeah, like a grumpy old guy, but yeah, cause what's the, what's the alternative? We should lock up everybody with disabilities and they shouldn't leave the house cause it's embarrassing. I don't agree. It shouldn't be that. Well, well I do Kirk. What do you say about that? <laughs> check out her book. You can find it on Amazon. Amy Lutz. <laughs> Yeah. I like the and, I like uh, the and, title and too. And bookstores. If you want to support a small a small biz, if you if you if you have a small a real a regular small bookstore around you, call in see if it's there. Support a small biz. It's the Pandy. Um, and also, I want to say uh, we have been putting calls out to you guys to leave uh, to rate and review this podcast, and we've been receiving a f uh, quite a few lately. Really? And a f 
a, a few of them, I've read them. I think we should read them next episode. Okay. Uh, a few of them have really uh, touched my little heart. And, you know, we've been doing this podcast a long time. And, and when I read things like that, it really fuels me up to keep doing the podcast. So I, I really appreciate the kind words from you guys. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Rate and review on iTunes or however you listen to it. What is? It's getting louder in there. What's happening? Uh, I think this hotel's about to take off. It sounds like the motors yeah. are starting for a, for a yeah. spaceship yeah. launch. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, Comfort Inn is uh, actually a, they're all spaceships. They're taking uh, America's finest and brightest, so they set up a fake Comfort Inn. Plus, I'm here too. Um, yeah. <laughs> Guys, uh, take a second to add us on, on uh, Instagram, Kirksmith Comedy, Instagram K, and uh, That's right. Patreon is uh, patreon.com slash autastic. We picked up a couple subscribers this week. We appreciate you guys. Have a great week. You can do it. Yeah. Thanks so much. Bye.